Well, good morning. <clears throat> How are you? And wasn't that incredible concert last week? Man, it was just awesome, awesome, awesome. Now, when you hear that word or you see that word retro, what do you think of? What comes to your mind? Now, some of you might be thinking of retro art to retro advertisement, which is a buzz going on right now. Uh, here's a recent ad uh, describing retro art. Eleganza, bold, dashing apparel. Looks like those platform shoes of the 70s are coming back. I'm glad I held on to mine. Might get some more wear out of them, possibly. Uh, so you might be thinking of retro art or maybe retro fashion. Retro fashion. This is coming in in 2014. 2014, you remember the days, the guy on the left? You remember when chest hair was hot? And the more you had, the hotter you were? You remember that in the 70s? John says it's coming back in again. If you notice, he's wearing a lot of these V collars these days. Uh, retro fashion. And then you've got uh, retro hairstyles, right? Yeah, oh no. Yeah, bring back the mullet, right? You know, or how about this one? There you go, the James Dean look. Now, that truly is retro there. Retro is something in the past that maybe was good or cool or whatever, and it's retrofitted. It, it comes back in today's culture, and we use it again and learn from it again. That's retro. Now, I grew up in the 70s, and in the 70s, we used to watch a great TV show. I still love it today. His name was The Fonz, right, The Happy Day Show, and that was a retro show in the 70s of the 50s. Now, Canaan... She grew up in the 90s, and the big show then was The 70s Show, right? And it was kind of the revival of, of disco music. We thought maybe some Sunday we'll get Canaan to do the disco fever or something for us here. That would be retro. Um, and now for, like, Renee, uh, Renee, what's retro for Renee, our, our, our youth pastor, it's like the Transformers. He likes, likes all these things, you know, and G.I. Joe and and Speed Racer, I think it was, and the Smurfs, there was something in the past that was big, and now they're big again today. That's what retro is. Retro comes from the Latin word retro. Can you say that? Retro, you just learned Latin, okay? And it means backwards or in past times. Now, the word itself came about uh, first by, uh, by scientists using it and discovering rockets. And what they found with rockets is they'd go back and use older parts of other rockets, and they would use them on newer rockets, all of a sudden they could go further faster, and they'd call it retrofit. And I think there's a principle here, and the principle is this. Sometimes in life, you have to look back to move forward. Can you say that with me? Sometimes in life, you have to look back to move forward. And some of you, if you're honest this morning, you might be maybe a little stuck in life. Maybe you're stuck in a relationship, and you might need to look back in order to move forward. Others of you might be maybe emotionally blocked, you know, and you need to, you need to deal with some past emotions, some past feelings in order for you to move forward. Others of us are what you call, if you're past 50, you're technologically blocked, at least I am. And that means you need to go back and learn some past skills on how to use your computer better so you can use your iPhone better in order for you to move forward. So sometimes in life, you have to look what? Back to move forward. And sometimes the same thing can be said of the church. Sometimes we as a church, we need to look back in order to move forward. Now, I don't know if you noticed or not, but for the last um, 
year or so, our, our Sunday attendance has been kind of plateaued. Now, last week at the concert was one of our largest attendance in years, and that, that's great and exciting, but, you know, it kind of bothers me when I see our church plateauing, you know, and, and I want to lead a thriving, growing, healthy church. So I've been praying. I've been praying for a church. We've got a group of, of guys and people meeting here on Wednesday night praying for the church. I really value that. It means a lot for me as the lead pastor to see people gathering together and, and really praying for our church. And I've been praying and saying, you know, God, what am I doing wrong? How do we need to change? You see, sometimes you've got to look back to move forward. And I'd like for us this morning to look way back, way back to the early church in Acts chapter 2. Now, if you've got your Bible or you've got your electronic devices, if you'd look up right now, look back to Acts chapter 2. Now, the book of Acts, fourth book of the New Testament called the Acts of the Apostle. It was written by Luke, Dr. Luke. Uh, Luke was a, um, a physician. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He hanged out with Peter and Paul. And then in Acts chapter 2, he paints this unbelievable picture of the early church. Acts chapter 2 is one of those chapters in the Bible that each and every one of you that call yourself a Christ follower ought to know because Acts chapter 2 is the birth of the church. Just like you know your birthday, Acts chapter 2 is the birthday. It's the birth of the church. Now let me kind of just put Acts chapter 2 into its historical context. About two or three years before Acts chapter 2, and we talked about this in this last series we did, Jesus was kind of walking by the Sea of Galilee, raising my chair up there a little bit, and, uh, and he says to Simon, whose name would later be changed to Peter, he said, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. I'm going to make you and your brother Andrew and your fishing buddies, James and John, into something you're currently not, fishers of men. Now, why did Jesus say that? Because followers fish if they're really following. To follow Jesus means to fish, right? You got that, right? And so these guys, they dropped their nets, they followed Jesus, and they became a part of this first small group. You really could call it an alpha group. Alpha is the first Greek letter of the Greek uh, alphabet, and it means first. And this was the first alpha group. The first group got going, and Jesus began to do life with these 12 guys. We call them the 12 what? 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. Now, after about a year or two, Jesus asked this group this question. He said, who do you say that I am? We've been kind of hanging out together. We've been eating meals together. You've seen me up close and personal. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, kind of being the leader of the group, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Can you say that with me? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the Christos. But you're more than that. You are God incarnate. You are the very Son of God. And then Jesus kind of says in words, Way to go, Peter, you're right. And upon that statement, I will build my church and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the gates of death shall not prevail against it. Even my own death will not stop this new movement called the church, the church from going forward. And then Jesus is crucified. The disciples are scared. They're baffled. They're confused. They, they thought this was it, and, and he's dead. He's in the grave. 
Then three days later, he's gloriously resurrected, comes back to life. He hangs out with these guys again for, uh, for about 40 days. At one time, more than four, more than 500 people gathered. I mean, he gave plenty of actual historical proof that he indeed died, that he indeed was brought back to life. So he hangs out with these guys for about 40 days. Then in Acts chapter 1, we're in the book of Acts, right? You with me? Acts chapter 1, we find Jesus. He ascends. He leaves the earth after the 40 days after his resurrection, and he goes back to heaven to be with his father. And then in Acts chapter 2, we have the event that we call today in the Protestant church, we call it the day of Pentecost, all right? There was this big, prominent Jewish feast taking place called the Feast of Weeks. Today, the Jewish people refer to it as Shavuot, which where they would celebrate the giving of the law of Moses, the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. So all of a sudden, we got all these Jewish people gathered from all the different nations having this feast. And we find the disciples. There was 12 of them. Now it's grown to about 120 of them. And they're praying together. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden something strange happens. I mean, really quite bizarre and weird. The Holy Spirit descends upon them, and they kind of were expecting that because Jesus said, once I leave, it's really for your good for me to leave because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes. And then they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they're speaking in other tongues, other languages. Look at verse 5. Now there, was, uh, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. They were there for this big feast. Jewish people from all over the world were there in Jerusalem. And all this sound, the sound of this 120 people, you know, speaking in all these languages, these sounds of the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own mother tongue, in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? A lot of Jesus' disciples were from the Sea of Galilee, the Galilean area. And they spoke Galilean, and now they're speaking Spanish and Italian. How can this be? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? They were confused. They were bewildered. What's going on? This is kind of strange. These guys don't know this language. All of a sudden, they're saying things, and I'm understanding what they're saying, and I'm not from around here. You get what's happening? Some naysayers, you know what it is? They're just drunk, 120 of them, 9 o'clock in the morning. You know, they're just, they're just enjoying the party just a little too much. So Peter stands in front of thousands of people, and he tries to explain what's happening and he basically says, and I encourage you to go home and read it today, Acts chapter 2. He basically says, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of the living God. And you crucified him. And you need to repent. You need to turn from what you've done. And you need to put your faith and trust in him. You need to believe in him. And then in Acts chapter 2, 2, 41 through 47, we see the response of all these people there that are gathered for this, uh, the day of Pentecost, all right? So if you would, um, why don't you stand with me out of respect for God's word, and we're going to uh, read this passage of scripture, and if you'll read the highlighted part, and remember as we read this passage of scripture, sometimes in life you have to look back to move where? Forward. 
All right? So let me begin. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, before you're seated, turn to your neighbor and say, sometimes in life you have to look back in order to move forward. All right? Do that real quick. You may be seated. Some of you guys are running around trying to find that old girlfriend. Okay, there. Let's go back. Now, for the next, I guess you found her apparently. Okay. Now, for the next three weeks, we're going to be studying this, this passage of Scripture because I really feel as a church, sometimes we need to go back in order to go forward. We need to study and understand our historical roots and what makes the church a church and how we can be a church that honor gods and, honor gods and lifts up Christ. So we're going to go back to the early church. All right, we're going to retro, going to go back. Verse 41, look at it again with me. So those who received his word. Now, who is his referring to? It's referring to who? Who just preached this sermon? Peter. All right. Those who received Peter's word, the word that Peter just preached, it was the gospel, the good news that God loves us and that God loves us so much that he sent Jesus and you need to believe in him. And then what was their response? What did they do? They were what? They were baptized. And, you know, you find this pattern throughout the book of Acts that people believed and then they were baptized. You never find people being baptized and then believing, all right? So Peter preaches, the people believe, and then they're baptized. And they were added that day from this group of about 120 to that day to about a group of how many? 3,000 souls. Can you imagine baptizing 3,000 people, those 12 disciples, they had a tremendous workout that day. They didn't need to go to L.A. Fitness or staying alive. They burned some carbs. 3,000 people they baptized that day. I mean, something explosive is happening. Something highly contagious is taking place. Look at verse 47. And the Lord added to their number, what's the words? Day by day, those who were being saved. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about how many? 5,000, Acts 5, 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. What's the word? Multitudes of both men and women. Acts 6, 1, the disciples were what? Increasing in numbers. And then we read on how now we're finding in Acts 7 and 8 and 9 and 10, we're finding multiple churches and multiple congregations. I mean, the church was just 
blowing up. And one of the most amazing facts of history, and this is not conjecture, this is not interpretation, this is a fact of history. One of the most amazing facts of history is that within five centuries, Christianity became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. This so-called Jesus movement, which started in a very obscure part of the Roman Empire in relatively a short period of time, transformed into a major world religion with millions of people, millions of followers spreading throughout India in the east, Ethiopia in the south, and Britain in the west. I mean, the story of the church, it's undeniable. It's unexplainable. It is unbelievable. So much so that today, 2,000 years later, more than 2 billion people say they follow and believe in Jesus Christ, about 30% of our population. Now, I'm a missiologist. My doctrinal study is in missiology. And when you read and see something like that, you want to ask yourself, why, what? What was going on in the culture? What, What caused this? What created this? And I think we find all the answers to those questions in the early church and what they were doing. So let's look back. Let's look back to the early church, Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 42. Dr. Luke describes this church this way. It says, they did what? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. They were devoted. And devotion is a strong word for love. A week ago, this past Tuesday, was my mother's birthday. Um, She turned 76, and um, she recently had uh, her knee replaced. She's had one replaced, now she's had the other knee replaced. And she was in the hospital about a week, and then she was moved to this rehab center. And and, uh, that Tuesday morning of her birthday was a very, very busy day for me. So I, I got up early, went to see her first thing in the morning, and she woke, and she was in pain. She wasn't feeling good, and I, I sat there with my mom, and we prayed together. Uh, we re- we uh, reminisced, you know, it's kind of nice. She's always going back to when I was born, you know, and oh, tell me a little bit more about that, you know, and, and we just reminisced together and, um, and just really had a very special time in my life on my mother's birthday. I was very gifted, very fortunate, very blessed to have a mother that really loved me and valued me, and uh, I really grew up with a strong sense of significance because of my mom. And I love her, and I'm devoted to her. I'm devoted to her. See, when you really love someone, you're devoted. And this early church, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That would be like the New Testament scriptures to us, the teaching of the apostles. They, when they came to church, they brought their Bible, their electric, electronic devices, I mean, they loved the Word. They were devoted to it. They were devoted to uh, the fellowship. They were devoted to coming together and sharing and, and doing life together. They prayed for each other. And I believe what made this early church so explosive was this devotion. It was a contagious love. And they learned this contagious love from Jesus. I mean, Jesus taught them by this, all people will know that you are truly my disciples 
by your love for each other, by your love for one another. And you can say what you want to say about Jesus, but you cannot deny his love. You cannot deny his love and his devotion for his Father. You cannot deny his love and his devotion for his disciples. You cannot deny his love and his devotion for the hurting, for the least of these. You cannot deny his love and devotion for women, the way he valued them, the way he treated women as equals, which wasn't uncommon in that culture. You cannot deny his love and devotion for children. And children were seen like slaves in that culture. They weren't even talked to. You cannot deny his love and his devotion for you. I mean, he made the ultimate sacrifice. He gave his very own blood. And this early church, they got it. They knew it. And often when they get together in these homes, you know, to have meals together, they would have the Lord's Supper. They would remember the blood. They would remember the sacrifice of Jesus. They would remember just how much he loved them. And because of that, they were devoted to him. They were committed. They had this contagious love. Now, what does this contagious love look like? If you've got your Bibles, flip with me over to Romans or flip to your right to Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at a couple verses here where I think the Apostle Paul really describes for us the love of Jesus Christ. Now, Romans is one of my favorite books. It's a letter written to the church of Rome. Matter of fact, it's the only letter, only epistle written to the church that Paul didn't visit. Usually Paul would go visit a church and then he'd leave and he'd write them a letter to encourage them. This one he wrote it before he got to Rome. And so Paul really lays out his theology in Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 11. He, he talks about justification and sanctification and glorification. Great theological, great stuff. He talks about the nation of Israel and what is God doing with the nation of Israel and the Jews and is God done with the Jewish people. Great theological stuff. A lot of different debate going on between the Christian church and the Jewish community. And he addresses some of that. And then in chapter 12, he gets real practical. And he takes all that theology stuff which only some of us absolutely love and adore, and then he begins to apply it to our life. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, he starts talking about this love, this love that the early church had, this contagious love, and he describes it for us. You see, number one, contagious love is authentic. Can you say that with me? Contagious love is authentic. All right, look at verse 9. Paul says, let love be, what's the word? Genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Contagious love is genuine. It's authentic. It's real. The Greek literally means let love be without hypocrisy. Remember in those days they had Greek actors. You know the way the Greek actors used to act? They would wear a mask. That's where the word hypocrisy came from. They would hide themselves from the audience. They would, they would hide their true self. And Paul is saying True love, let it be genuine. Let it be real. Don't let it be a, a, a hypocrite, a fake, a false love, a genuine love, a true love. And most of us, we work pretty hard at keeping up appearances, don't we? And before long, it becomes a pattern of pretending to be someone we are not. We keep up pretenses, don't we? I mean, we got our lucky jeans and our Gucci bags, you know. We keep up pretenses. Now, how do you know if you're wearing a mask? 
You know the way you know if you're wearing a mask and trying to keep up pretenses? When someone gives you a compliment, you think to yourself, if you really knew me, you wouldn't say that about me. And if you think those thoughts, your true self isn't in alignment, isn't congruent with the person you're projecting. It's an inauthentic love. It's an inauthentic picture. And we can continue down the road of pretenses, of pretending that we have it all together, that we're perfect, or we can choose to be real. We can choose to be authentic with each other. We can choose to love people the way they are. And we can stop hiding ourselves and stop judging others and start accepting people and forgiving people. You see, if you are a Christ follower, you can be a courageous lover. And the Apostle Paul tells us how and why in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. He says, God's love has been poured into our hearts. If you know Christ, God's love, the Holy Spirit, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given, who has been given to us. Authentic love comes from the Spirit of God. The Apostle John says this. He says, if you don't love people, if you don't love God, then God is not inside of you because God is love. And if God is in your heart, you should be a courageous lover. And if you're not, you need to stop and have an authentic conversation with God and say, are you inside of me? Is my love authentic and real? Or am I just keeping up pretenses? The early church's love was real. It was authentic. Look at verse 9 again. Let love be genuine. And then I think Paul's describing this authentic, genuine love that it's a love of grace and truth, truth and grace. He says genuine love abhors what is evil. Genuine love isn't the love we have today that just kind of overlooks sin. Genuine love says it, it, it hates what is evil and holds fast to what is good. Authentic love is honest. It's genuine. It rejects sin. It abhors what is evil but holds fast to what is good. We need to hate what is evil. We need to cling to what is good. We need to hate the evil in people. We need to hate the evil in us, the bad choices that we all make. But we don't reject ourselves, and we shouldn't reject other people because of the choices they make. You see, this, this early church, they loved people. They didn't care about their past. They didn't care about the way they were living and what they were into. Yeah, they rejected their sin, but they loved the person. And today in America, we've become so cynical and so judgmental that our love isn't contagious anymore. Their love was contagious because it was authentic, because it was real, because it was genuine. It wasn't judgmental. It was accepting and forgiving. And if we're honest, you know, it's, it's very hard to love that way because we're all a product of our culture. And it's easy to be cynical and judgmental and make fun of other people and other beliefs and other values. But this early church was different. They had this authentic love that attracted people to the church. Contagious love is authentic. Number two. Contagious love is affectionate. Can you say that with me? Contagious love is what? Affectionate. 
Paul says in verse 10, love one another with what kind of love? Brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor and esteem to each other. Now, the apostle Paul was apparently a hugger. He was a hugger. And Paul was saying, you know, Christians ought to love each other with family affection. The same way you love your biological family, the same way you love your brother or your sister, your mom and your dad, and and healthy families express that love and show that love. He says, just like you express healthy love in a biological family, and the church, it's the family of God. We are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we ought to have this healthy, affectionate love for each other. Loving families express their love in a healthy way. Contagious love is affectionate. Now, some of you germaphobes, huh, um, you might have to get over this, and I got a cold, and I'm fist-bumping today as you leave, you know, so I'm, I'm preaching one thing and doing another, but I'm doing it for your protection. But some, for some of you germaphobes, you know, it takes a lot of courage to come to church on Sunday and hug people and shake hands, you know. I see you grabbing that stuff, and you walk right out the door real quick, and, you know, we're, we're, our culture today, we're like, we're like scared to love, you know. And, and, and honest, I'm not trying to draw attention to myself. I haven't been to the doctor for sickness for three years, and I hug a lot of people, you know, shake a lot of hands. Um, so, sorry, some of you germaphobes. Kind of need to get over it. Matter of fact, you know what the early church used to do? They used to greet one another with what? A holy kiss. Romans 16, 16 says, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 2 Corinthians 13.12 says the same thing. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5.26 says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, that's going a little too far for me. You know? Now, whenever you read a verse of Scripture, you always need to ask yourself this question, right? Is this descriptive or prescriptive. Can you say that with me? Is this descriptive or prescriptive? When you read the Bible, you need to ask yourself, is this descriptive? Is God just describing for us accurately and truthfully in the Bible what took place, or is this prescriptive? This is something that I'm supposed to live and to do. Now, greeting one another with with a holy kiss is probably descriptive. He's describing the culture of that day. That's what they used to do back then. And he was encouraging the Christian church to do more of it, to outwardly express their affection. So that's probably, that's what you would call, he's describing. Now, affectionately loving each other, that's prescriptive. Here in Romans, this is a command. This is a command. You know, maybe you didn't, you know, have much affection in your family. Get over it. I tell men that often in counseling. I don't get counseling anymore because the guys never come back. I just say, get over it. Learn to hug. Learn to love. It's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. Just get over it. And, and think about the early church. What made it so explosive? These people came to worship, and they saw and felt authentic affection These people, they said, man, they they really love each other. They show honor to each other. And people come to church here every Sunday, and they don't necessarily say it, but they're hoping to find the manifestation of love. They live in a world that's so selfish and self-centered where people stab them in the back, and they're hoping to find a community of people who will authentically love them and accept them and forgive them and do life with them. 
Now, that doesn't mean they want everybody groping them and grabbing them and kissing them, okay? Let's be clear on that. I mean, nothing worse than some old deacon kissing every young girl entering the church, all right? That's not what we're talking about. It needs to be holy, which means with God-honoring motives, okay? So contagious love is authentic. Contagious love is affectionate. And number three, contagious love is active. Look back at Romans 12, verse 13 says this. When God's people are in need, we just read about that in Acts chapter 2, verse 44. We'll be talking about that more next week. Be ready to help them. You know, this past week we had some families in our church that were really in a financial pickle. And, um, and some of the pickleness that they're in wasn't even a result of their own choices. And they came to us for help. And we were able to write some significant checks to help them because you give, because you care, because you love. That's what it's talking about here. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice, what's the word? Hospitality. Now, we're going to talk more about this next week. Practicing hospitality is talking about opening your home, having meals together. You know, we've kind of lost this in our culture. It says, man, as Christ followers, we need to be quick to be inviting people into our homes and having meals together. You know, I find it so interesting that the Bible never defines love, but it always describes love. And love is something you do. Love is not just something you feel. In our American culture, we think love is simply a feeling. Love is something you do. Love is a deed. Love is an activity. Love is something I and you choose to do. Love is only love when it acts. Contagious love acts. It responds to human needs. And it could be a physical need. It could be a spiritual need. It could be an emotional need. But it responds to needs. And we're responsible to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our love needs to be very active. We need to be doing love and not just talking about love. We need to be authentic and real. And when you start loving people like that, let me tell you something. It's not easy because Christians sometimes can be real jerks. Have you realized that? You know? And it's hard sometimes to love people and they expect more and demand more and then you're fostering dependence. It's hard to help. It's hard to help in a way that empowers people and liberates people and doesn't enslave them. But love must act. Love must do. And sometimes in life, you got to look back in order to go forward. One of my favorite writers, really more about years ago, back in, uh, I think, Dr. Uh, Scott Peck, you're probably familiar with him. He, he died, I think, 2005, 2006. Wrote about a dozen books. He was a brilliant psychologist. He came to faith later in life, and as you read his books, you can see his, his faith beginning to grow. And for me, as a theologian, you can see his theology kind of coming more in line with the Scriptures. Um, but a brilliant writer, and his classic book is called The Road Less Travel. How many of you have read that book? You know, probably about half of us have read that book. Incredible book. And he talks a lot about this courageous love and a higher form of love that is authentic and affectionate and active. And then he talks about how when you take human beings, I love this word. He says whenever you take human beings and you put them together, be it at church or in a marriage or in a family or at work, you get what he calls dissidence. You know, you get 
tension and frustration and, and, um, and distance between them. Stuff happens. Feelings get hurt. Anger sometimes gets out of control. And there's tension in the relationship. And Scott Peck says, he says that if you're not careful, you will begin to live with this dissonance and you'll begin to live what he calls pseudo-community. And you might want to jot that down in your notes. Pseudo-community. He says a lot of people out there are living in pseudo-community. They're not really fighting on the outside, but they're just not authentic. They're not affectionate. They're not active in their relationship with each other. They're not living what we would call Acts 2, biblical community. They're living in pseudo-community. And Dr. Dr. Peck says that if you want to get back to, to real community, a higher form of love, he says you got to look back. you got to go back in order to go forward. you got to look back and go through the, he calls it the tunnel of chaos. You have to courageously and authentically look back and be willing to enter this tunnel of chaos so you can move forward again. You can't continue to believe that everything's okay, that there's no problem in the relationship, that you can just ignore a bad behavior on your part and think that the relationship's going to go forward. No, it's in dissonance. You're disconnected. You've got to be willing to look back and go back in order to move forward. And maybe this morning, some of you, you this week, as a follower of Christ, you need to have some hard, difficult conversations. You need to be willing to enter the tunnel of chaos. And you know the way you enter the tunnel of chaos? You enter it with faith. It takes faith to deal with your junk. It takes faith to deal with emotional baggage. It takes faith to be willing to look back so you can move and, and go forward. And maybe this, this week, some of you, you need to go back. You need to look back. You need to take that step. You see, your heart is not going to get any bigger by shutting it down. And some of you have got relationships, and slowly over time, you're in pseudo-community, and you're shutting your heart down. Your heart gets bigger when you let the love of God in, and you let God's love transform you and change you and help you to have healthy, strong, loving, authentic, affectionate, active relationships like the early church did. You see, the answer to the problems of this world starts with us. It always starts with us. The answer to the problems of this world is not ultimately found in politics, and, 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 and I value the political arena, and politicians can do some good things, but the ultimate answer to our problems in this world is not found in politics or in education, and I've spent a lot of years in education, and I value education, but politics and education cannot and does not transform the human heart. You see, the church of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world because it has the message of hope. It has the message of love. It transforms people's heart. And we're supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus. 
as we live our life, we're supposed to be sharing that message of hope, the gospel, the good news, that there's a God out there that loves us, that wants to bring about health and healing in our lives. But in order to get there, some of us have got to go back. We've got to deal with some core issues and problems so we can move forward faster. This morning, become a contagious lover. Man, open up your heart. Let God fill you up with his love so you can live and experience biblical community. Can we bow our heads in prayer? And with our heads bowed in prayer, can you join me this morning in praying and saying, God, help me to love others courageously. Can you pray that? God, help me to be a courageous lover. God, help me to look back, to go forward. God, help me to quit pretending that everything's okay when there's dissonance in the relationship. God, help me to deal with my emotions, my baggage, my feelings, whatever it is that's keeping me from biblical community. Can you thank God right now for loving you? So you say, God, I thank you that you love me. You want me to be healthy. You want me to be whole, as whole as I can be living on this earth. Some of you need to pray this morning. I thank you for sending your son. Maybe you never prayed that prayer before. God, I thank you for sending your son and dying for me. I put my faith in him. I want to join his movement of authentically, affectionately, and actively loving this world. Can you pray that this morning? Christ, come into my life. Change me. Fill me up with your love. God, help me to love others courageously, contagiously. And can you pray for our church right now? That God will help us to be authentic and real. That we won't play church on Sundays, but that we'll be the church. Can you pray that we'll be an affectionate church? That we will actively love and care for each other? God, you are such an amazing God. And you truly love us. And we can't deny the facts of history and what you have done through your church. God, the church with all its imperfections and sins and struggles, God, you continue to manifest your love through the church. May you manifest your love through us. May we deeply love each other. And may that love be contagious. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.